Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When I worked for President Obama in the first two years of his administration, one of my colleagues was a bright young economics whiz named Brian Deese, who I promptly named Diesel because he was the staff director on the project that ended up saving the American auto industry. Really one of the most inspiring people I've met in public life, Uh, in a very low-key and authentic way, as you can hear for yourself. Brian Deese, great to see you. One of my favorite people from uh, campaign days, from White House days. So you were 30, 31 years old, and you were uh, a deputy on the National Economic Council, and you were deeply involved in the Recovery Act. You were the staff quarterback on the auto bailout that saved the American auto industry. You went on to be uh, deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget, as acting director of the Office of Management, Management and Budget. And then you ended up as the president's uh, senior advisor and, and with a portfolio like uh, climate change and econ- the economic economic relationship with China and so on. So I'm thinking that you were Jared before it was cool, uh, except you didn't have the relationship. Uh, But uh, how did you get to that point? Um, When I picked up the story, uh, that you were in the position to do those things for the president because you didn't marry his daughter. (laughs) Well, it's a... uh it's a question that I sometimes ask myself because it certainly wasn't my uh, hope or expectation or plan uh, that I would happen into the series of events that uh, led me to that string that you just described. Um, but your dad was into, he, he's, a, he's an academic and he is an academic in some of those areas that came to interest you, right? International economics and so on. Yeah, that's right. My my dad, I grew up in a family where my dad was an academic and was very focused on political science. And my mother was an engineer uh, and was focused on uh, environmental issues, but from a science and an engineering perspective. So you, so you really grew up on the right side of the tracks, in, in other words. This isn't one of those Horatio Alger story. No, I was... More ex- like a Horatio Algie story. <laughs> <laughs> I, was ex- I was extraordinarily fortunate to grow up in a household where there was um, a lot of priority put on intellectual creativity and, uh, and, and exploration and had, in some ways, the sort of two sides of the brain in my mom and my dad. Uh, and my older sister was a very science and mathematically oriented person. And so I also grew up in a household where I had two um, 
strong women role models who were both way more oriented toward understanding math and science uh, than I knew I ever would be. So you, so you had these two influence, you had these influences around you, uh, and but you ended up going to law school. I did. So I came act uh, of rebellion. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I again, this is more of a story of. Um, happenstance than grand design. I came out of, um, I went to college and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I had a set of great professors early on in my undergraduate. Where'd you go? I went to Middlebury Mm -hmm. in Vermont. Yeah. It's gotten in the news. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Little... A little active up there these days on the free not quite, speech issue. Not quite the profile that you're looking for in a sort of sleepy uh, uh, New England liberal arts school. Yeah, but an nonetheless. amazing story. Yeah. What would you think about that? Uh, for those who don't uh, remember, uh, there was quite a row uh, over a speaker uh, there, um, Charles... Um, Charles Murray. Murray, yes, who who's written a lot about uh, the economics and the, the, the societal forces that have led to Donald Trump's election and so on, but earlier wrote one that many people found offensive uh, that uh, about the races. And uh, so there was a major protest there that turned violent. And in fact, the teacher who, the professor was going to essentially in, uh, uh, grill Murray on some of his views was injured as well. Yeah, and her name her name is Allison Stanger, and she was a um, she was one of my professors and one of my advisors and a mentor to me when I was there. And look, I think the the whole thing is um, sad. It reflects pretty poorly on uh, Middlebury in a way that I don't think is fair or represents the Middlebury community. I guess part of my reaction is that it's a good example of how if you are going to organize and you're going to protest, you need to think about what your goal is and what your objectives are. Uh, and so, you know, cause I think also one of the punchlines out of this is that, um, a protest that came from totally legitimate, uh, from a totally legitimate place has now turned this thing all the way over onto its head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not sure punchline is the word that I would, <laughs> Use in this in this regard, but it does uh, look. It's not just Middlebury. Middlebury was an extreme example. We've seen some others, but on our campus and every campus, there's a lot of restiveness. I think uh, the election of uh, Trump has exacerbated that. Um, and you know, we had uh, Van Jones here uh, a few weeks ago, and I think Van Van said something that was incredibly important. He said. Uh, I, I don't want you to be safe from. Uh, I want you to be safe from physical harm. He said to the students, but not from ideas that you don't like. He said, uh, "I want you. I don't want you to be safe. I want you to be strong." He said, "And this a university campus is the gym. This is where you learn how to be strong and uh, deal with arguments that you don't uh, like or agree with, uh, and be able to resist those in in, in an intellectual way." And um, I think that's really true. Yeah, and I think that part of being strong is learning that if you let your emotions get the best of you or you overreact and you start using you know, violence rather than your intellect or otherwise, then you really undercut your own you know, effort. And 
and look, there's a bigger, I think you're right, this taps into a bigger anxiety and anger that's out there. But I also think that it goes to, it goes beyond the campus. And it's been brewing for a while before him. But yeah, that's I right. It's just been tor- turbocharged perhaps uh, a little bit by his election. And goes way beyond the campus environment. Right. That, you know, uh, uh, we're not going to be able to start to get at some of the underlying problems that are plaguing the country if we also can't learn to be strong but civil yeah in the way that we disagree with each other well, i couldn't i couldn't agree with you more we're in silos and uh it's very hard if you're lobbing grenades from your silo uh to get to get a whole lot done so you went so you did what a lot of people uh do or 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 people of a certain status do when they don't know what to do with their lives you went to law school <laughs> i did i did so i was i came out of school i came out of undergrad being very intellectually curious and excited about understanding how um, economies work and how they can work for the benefit of people or to the detriment of people i spent a while focused on other economies, looking outside, doing research on um, other countries in Africa, South Asia, and otherwise. And over time, I got particularly intrigued by the fact that a lot of these questions that I was asking in a research context, I was seeing in our in the community that I lived in and in in, um, uh, in the country that I lived in. And so I got more interested in what kind in, of question? Questions about you know, for example, uh, can you? Um, can you design social policy interventions that actually, you know, uh, actually are effective at targeting the population? So, for example, I would spend a lot of time looking at the question. You remember at the end of the 1990s, one of the things that Clinton did on his way out was provide debt relief. It mm-hmm. was associated with the Jubilee movement and the uh, the Jubilee year, provide debt relief to a number of countries in Africa. And I spent some time looking at the question of was that actually an effective way of improving health and education outcomes for people in those countries. And um, you saw echoes of those questions in communities in the United States where effectively the answer, which is not that surprising, but um, was important in terms of understanding the efficacy of policy was that governance mattered a lot. And that at the end of the day, countries that had effective governance regimes, minimally credible institutions, providing debt relief did actually end up having a flow-through impact. And countries where that wasn't the case, it was very difficult to tell what was accomplished. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that got me that got me interested in, in asking those same set of questions, but in for the United States and, and within communities within the United States uh, and otherwise. So I was I was really interested intellectually in those questions, but you know, I, part of this part of it was that I also knew myself and knew that I was oriented more toward action than study, and so I didn't think that I had the the patience to go uh, study economics in a formal academic way, and so uh, I went to law school, as you say, as a lot of people do uh, when they're thinking about uh, what they want to do and how they want to learn. And did you do it with any intent to actually practice law? No. <laughs> no. Uh, in fact, I had a conversation with the, the dean then of the law school on the front end and said— This was at Yale Law School, yeah, right? and said uh, my— uh, uh, 
an institution I, on the East Coast. <laughs> in the town of New Haven. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, I said at the time, my, my intention, I'm, I'm extraordinarily interested in, in the, the intellectual benefits that you get from a law degree, but I don't have any intention in practicing law. And they were actually quite welcoming of that uh, approach. I think that a lot, law degrees, it is, the, it is the degree of practice for policymaking at the end of the day. All of policy is law in one way or another. Mm-hmm. You're making law. You're implementing law. Regulation is a is a. So it was useful. It was useful. It was useful for me. I, it, more useful than, frankly, I had anticipated. Uh, I learned more at the the beginning of my law school uh, career than I ever anticipated about how to think about problems and realized that I was I was inf- insufficiently equipped before that to really think rigorously about some of these challenges. So, so I benefited a lot from it, but not in the conventional way that people traditionally go into that. And you valued it so much that you mailed in your final papers from your office at the White House uh, uh, when, you, when you got there. So, Well, it's fair to say that events intervened. <laughs> <laughs> you went to work for Hillary Clinton. I did. I did the summer in two thousand and and two thousand eight, two thousand seven, two thousand. The summer of two thousand seven, which was the summer after my second year of law school, uh, I went down and I started started first volunteering for the campaign, uh, and then I stayed on with the campaign, doing economic policy for her throughout the fall, and uh, and that was the that was the period of overlap where my third year of law school intersected with uh, with that job. So I I was less. Uh, I was less unilaterally focused on law than I would have been otherwise, uh, but that was a uh, yeah. It was a it was a period of it was it was it was a lot of fun, but it was also just sort of what, a crazy period in life where I was uh, I was doing a hundred going one hundred and seventy five percent going back and forth. You see, you should have. We had I know you're a Red Sox fan. We had Theo Epstein on this podcast, and he shared the story about going to law school while he was the. Uh, director of player development or something with the uh, San Diego Padres and used to trade tickets for notes, class notes. Oh, that's so much cooler than yeah. that story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You yeah. didn't have, you, you didn't spend six, six weeks at spring training during. No, your... I wasn't trading, you know, small business tax credit proposals for, uh, <laughs> for, for law school notes. So, um, so Hillary um, lost obviously to Barack Obama Um and you made a very you made a a very smooth transition from one campaign to the other. I remember being in the Obama campaign and people saying, "Gee, it'd be great if we could get Brian Deese over here," uh, you know, because they knew you were a free agent after that campaign. How hard was it to make the transition from the Clinton campaign to the Obama campaign after a very very hard fought race? Well, look, I was really unfortunate to have the op- option to to come over, <laughs> and I also think I I think I benefited also from being um, somewhat the you know I was of low enough profile at that point. Uh, most you know most people didn't really know who I was. That it was it was easier to integrate than somebody who had spent. You hadn't said anything mean that right. anybody could remember. I hadn't spent six months on TV uh, yes. saying memorable lines uh, in the in the context of the campaign. But but I remember I was actually at the uh, I was at uh, then uh, then Senator Clinton's uh, farewell speech in the building museum. Uh, where eighteen thousand cracks 18, in the 18 glass million, uh, cracks eighteen million yes and after that after the event 
as we were filing out of the event, uh, Jason Furman, who was coming on to lead also came. the economic efforts, yeah. called as I was walking out and said, you know, okay, so is it time to talk about coming out to Chicago? And so it was a whirlwind. I mean, I, we, I literally, you know, came out, um, uh, without any real break. And, you know, it was a lot easier than I anticipated. I anticipated both for me, it would be difficult. And also for the, the team that had, you know, fought and won that it would be, yeah. uh, It's easier to be the team that fought and won than the team that fought and lost. Well, that's, that's for sure. But also I think there was a, you know, there was a, there was an esprit de corps and a cadence to that campaign and the operation that if you, liked it and you were into it was pretty quick to, you know, bring people in and get people, uh, fired up. So, uh, so it was actually, so one of the great, you know, one of the great things about my life, uh, at that period was just how easy it was and how easy it was to get excited about the mission that we were on, which was great. Cause it lasted all of six weeks before, the economy started to uh, fall off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to um, ask you about that, uh, obviously. And I, you were, I'm sure, in the room after the election when uh, the uh, the briefing was held with uh, Christy Romer, Larry Summers, uh, Tim Geithner, and Peter Orzag briefing the president and the uh, vice president-elect on the situation they were about uh, to to enter, I want to ask you about that. But just one one word or two before that about sort of what you saw in the economy before it collapsed, because it seems to me, you know, you go back, you look at Bill Clinton's speeches in 1992 when he ran for president. He's talking about the forgotten middle class, uh, and in every election. You know, for decades, there were these echoes of that because already people were beginning to feel disenfranchised and particularly in these factory towns, small towns, uh, where uh, a lot of operations have been moved overseas uh, and so on. So in that sense, there was a fast-moving crisis and a slow-moving crisis that had really defined American politics for decades. I remember— even in the the election prior in 2004, I worked a little bit on the Kerry campaign, and we were doing things like the middle class misery index. Remember back on that? You're right; it's a sort of consistent theme. But one of the things that was so striking about working on the the, the primary and then on the the general election is, in the primary, there was so much effort focused on differentiation between two candidates that were held 95% right. of the same policy views and Always so Always tough in primary. Yeah, and so it, it it the the conversation almost by definition couldn't get at that the the more profound fundamental challenges in the economy and then you know the general election had the potential to do that in terms of the 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 the, the dynamic between the two candidates but then the fast-moving part got so fast and so quick and so overwhelming that that, you know, immediately took all the oxygen uh, out of the out of the debate. Uh, I, know, I know how frightening it was. We sat in a room in mid-December. This We got this briefing, and one by one by one, these economic advisors informed the 
president-elect, the vice president-elect, and all of us, just how deep they saw this crisis becoming and very quickly. How, uh, how frightening was it to be on the inside of the team when you were uh, assessing where the economy was going then as, as the president was about to take office? The two things I remember, remember the most are, one, we were so overwhelmed and so all out that you almost didn't have time to be frightened. That that period from the Tuesday night in Grant Park, coming back in that Wednesday morning, and then just being uh, at it, because there were so it felt like there were so many things that were moving so quickly that just to try to keep up with what was happening in the financial markets, what was happening in the auto industry, what was happening in terms of the the, the real economy and and you know, budget deficits and and all of this, it was so it was it was moving so quickly and uh, that you just I spent all like every waking hour just trying to keep up. I remember that. And the second thing I remember is that now with hindsight looking back, we were all very bleak, but we really didn't have a good feel for how bad things were. In November and December of 2008, we were worried about three, four, 500,000 jobs a month being lost. And we were talking about, you know, with with each passing day and each passing week, we were talking about incrementally larger stimulus packages. But, you know, in some in some ways, uh, we would have been even more paralyzed by fear if we com- we completely understood. I think people forget two things. One is how deep the crisis was at its at its peak, uh, or at its depths. I guess I should say. Uh, and the other is how quickly it set upon us, because even as we sat in that room in December, we we did not know that the economy was shrinking by 8.9%, even as we sat there. That last quarter was the worst quarter since 1930. And as you point out, 800,000 jobs would be lost in January. I mean, I don't know. You know, Roosevelt came to office, and the Depression was already well-defined, when he came to office, this was like a a tidal wave. But before we talk about that, I guess I should do something for our own economy here and take a short break. And we'll be right back with Brian Deese. I remember, and you probably do too, the conversation in the room with the president-elect and uh, vice president-elect uh, that day in December when the discussion turned to the stimulus, the what would be called the Recovery Act, because people don't like the word stimulus. I think it sounds like something a proctologist does or something. I, I don't know. But they don't like it. We knew that. Uh, and, um, uh, and there was a very sort of high-level discussion about what sh- the kinds of things that should be in it. The president wanted things that would have lasting value and not just uh, – things that would have transient value. But there were several steps that were taken. The Recovery Act was one. Um, the, uh, the shoring up of the banking system was another early in the administration. Uh, and the one you were deeply involved in, the auto uh, recovery, was another. And I want to talk about that at some greater length. How important were those actions in terms of stemming the crisis. In other words, 
if the if the if the U.S. hadn't taken those steps, if the government hadn't taken those steps, if the president hadn't taken those steps, uh, what 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 would the outcome have been? Well, look, the, the, there's I think that object the objective the objective analysts who've looked at this are pretty clear that, but for that set of interventions, principally the Recovery Act and the actions by both the executive branch and the Fed to shore up the banking system, we would have been in a Great Depression, and we would have experienced unemployment and GDP contraction like we've never seen. And so the counterfactual is, I think, is as deep as the Great Depression, deeper, deeper, that both in terms of the contraction of in economy and the loss in wealth, significantly, we're looking at magnitudes deeper than the Great uh, Depression. And so I think there's, there's, I think there's very little debate substantively, academically, or otherwise, that that set of actions <laughs> at that time prevented this country from falling into a catastrophic depression. The, the challenge, politically, but also substantively, is you know, doing better than a Great Depression isn't, doesn't work as a political message and as an economic matter— we did not do as much as the economy needed because we were constrained by politics. So that so those two things create a lot of debate. So you would argue the need for larger stimulus for uh, uh, an infrastructure program that the president had fought for and lost uh, and other measures that would have... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, first of all, the, the, the argument that... Um, that we could have and we we should have done more immediate fiscal stimulus than was politically possible to get through the Congress is compelling. But also, I think that we, I don't know whether it was a miscalculation or just a, a hope that never materialized, which was, I think we always were of the view that we would be able to go back at this issue. And if the economy needed more support, that we would be able to get some help in trying to deliver on that. And while we did over the course of the first term, we did actually pass subsequent pieces of legislation, a payroll tax cut and otherwise, that provided some incremental stimulus. It wasn't of the magnitude or on a timing that you would have done if your principal focus was on how to accelerate the trajectory of the recovery. The, um, one of the elements was the auto yeah. industry. When Obama took office, the auto industry was on sort of life support in that the Bush administration, at the request of Obama, had extended some uh, loans to the automakers, but just enough to get through to March or April. Um, you you were assigned the portfolio to work with Steve Ratner and others uh, to figure out if there was a way to save the industry. Were you convinced from the beginning that you could save the American auto industry? Chrysler and GM were the two companies that were obviously on the on the brink then. No, and and and, and frankly, at the beginning, we had, we had a lot of questions and a lot of doubt about that. I remember the first the first time we sat down with the president, which was actually before the president elect, which was before that um, December meeting, the now famous December meeting with the president's 
um, oh, whatever moment. Yes. Was uh, you can? It's a podcast, man. I can, can say, say whatever I want. Well, the shit. holy shit moment. Yeah. <laughs> no, so we fir- when we first sat down with the president uh, and laid out in very broad terms, you know, the, con- the the challenges associated with the the auto industry. I always remember his reaction. We weren't asking for any decisions or anything, but his reaction was, oh, "Why can't these companies make a Corolla?" And it'll always stick with me because I think he went immediately to the root cause problem, which was why we couldn't answer your question in the first instance, which is the the challenge facing the auto companies was uh, what economists say was both a liquidity and a solvency problem, meaning they were running out of money because the economic crisis was so acute, nobody was buying cars. But underneath that, they were operating their businesses in a way that they weren't going to be able and to. And Americans succeed. kind of knew that. I mean, part of the political problem was that Americans, it, it, it was striking how few people actually wanted the government to intervene to help the auto industry because the feeling was, why should we bail them out for making stupid decisions? Yeah, and, and this, is what, this is what made the working on this, this issue both so complicated and so freeing in some way, which is all of the options were political losers because the American people had gotten frustrated with the fact that these companies didn't seem to be focused on succeeding. They seemed to be focused on other issues. So, but it also was a, but, but, but for us to get to the point to even be able to answer that question, we needed that bridge that you mentioned from the Bush administration, because, you know, you talk about the arresting nature of the situation. We got a briefing in late November that said that GM was literally going to run out of money on December 17th. That was the day after we had that meeting with the president. And so we went to work immediately and said, okay, well, we're going to have to figure out some bridge or else what we're going to have when we, be, when we take over is not just a failing auto industry, but we will have a failed auto industry at that point, And we won't even have a chance to answer that question of, was there a viable path forward? So we went to we went about we had a little bit of time because of the money that the Bush administration had put in, and we went around, went into trying to answer that question. And the way we talked about it was we tried to answer the question of is there a shiny new GM? And what we meant by that was underneath all of the debt and underneath all of the pressures associated with the crisis, was there a core uh, company that was worth saving? And as you say. We didn't really. We had the benefit of not really being able to ask the question of politically, did it make sense? Because either path was a political loser. So we just really tried to bear down on that question. It turned out the answer was easier in the case of GM. Its size, its scope, its global footprint, it, the assets that it had made clear that there was a, a a real potential for that. Much harder in the case of crisis. I remember the meeting at which the president sort of made his decisions. It was a meeting in two parts, and the, the, the second part was in the evening. You'll remember in the Roosevelt Room. I do. And it was an emotional meeting. Uh, you had um, Robert Gibbs, the press secretary who had worked in Michigan, who said, you know, some of these towns in Michigan aren't just looking forward to a depression. They're, they're in a depression already. And, and then Gene Sperling, who was from Michigan, made a very emotional plea for what what it would mean to just walk away uh, from from not from the corporations 
but from the people, including the supply chain. What would have happened if uh, if the president hadn't intervened in terms of GM and Chrysler? What would the economic impact of that been? Well, we looked a lot at that question, and I think that if the president decided to step away from both of those companies, the first thing uh, to understand is that Ford would have gone under too because even though Ford was in a position where they had a lot more cash, they, they relied on the same system of suppliers to make their steering And there wheels. wasn't enough su- there and to keep the supply chain going without the other two. So if GM and Chrysler go down and then the supply chain starts to go down, then why wouldn't it? Why too. wouldn't Why wouldn't Ford then pick up some of the customers of GM and Chrysler and keep the chain going? So this is one of these uh, challenges of policymaking in the middle of a crisis where the floor hasn't been found. Because I think under normal economic circumstances, that would have been the dynamic, which is a competitor gains market share and strength. But because of the spiraling nature of the of the crisis, GM goes down, Chrysler goes down, all of their top suppliers go down. That puts Ford in a position where it can't, even though it might have the potential a year or two or three down the road to pick up some of that uh, market share. At that point, nobody's buying cars. Remember, we're in a position where auto sales, which typically run about 16, 17 million a year, had fallen down below 10. Mm-hmm. And we were actually you know, getting the data about daily auto sales at dealerships around the country from these uh, companies, and it was just falling off a cliff. So at that point, Ford never would have had a chance to get out of the rut and back up and have that opportunity. So then you're looking at, you know, more than a million jobs associated with those, uh, with those companies and the suppliers. And then if you look at the knock-on impact, you're looking at uh, significantly more economic impact uh, than that. But I think that the, the, to me, the, the Chrysler decision is the, one of the more, is the, most, is the most interesting example of the challenge of policymaking because Chrysler alone, the impact was not as significant. And the president, I think, got very solid, level-headed arguments on both sides in terms of I remember what that. to do. And you know, to me, I was a. This was one. You know, this is my first experience in government, watching the po- the process unfold, and the passion on both sides that went into doing the analysis and marshalling the arguments um, was just extraordinarily admirable because it was it was adversarial in the sense that people had strong points of view but it was all in service of trying to provide information Mm -hmm. to this guy who was put in a situation of making a terribly difficult decision but better to make the decision informed uh with the best analysis so that one was a tough one uh, I think you guys said it was a 50-50 shot that it would work. Yeah. I think the the presentation was something like 51-49, but these deals tend I to I was get, rounding. Yeah, these t- these de- <laughs> but no, but in fairness to you, you know, the team also said these deals tend to get worse not better over time. Yeah. So it was a real it was an over to you boss moment. Yeah, which is why they get the big chair. <laughs> um the uh the other issue, um, obviously, was the banks. And you got involved in the Dodd-Frank uh, issue pretty deeply in terms of its implement, its, ex- its development and implementation. Now you, 
you know, there, obviously the financial industry had some resistance to some of these reforms, and now you um, hear the president speaking about rolling a bunch of them back. Um, make the argument as to why that's a bad idea, and push. tell me why it's not right to say some of the things that were done were burdensome and, and throttle the economy. Sure. So look, the, argu- the argument for why this is a bad idea is pretty straightforward, which is at the end of the day, the, the, the core things that Dodd-Frank did was require the financial system as a whole, um, but banks and other systemically significant firms to hold more capital against the risks that they, they imposed on the entire financial system and to put in place a system where as and if they got in trouble – they had, you know, the ability to wind themselves down without tying the entire financial system in knots and pulling the entire financial system down with it. You know, those, and presumably taxpayers. Exactly. And th- those two uh, core elements are now r- relatively well embedded into the financial system. Yes, there is squawking and yes, there is, um, is complaint at the margin. But for the most part, our financial system is operating uh, just fine uh, with those protections in place, and it would be it, you would expose the economy and taxpayers to an extraordinary amount of unnecessary risk uh, to roll those back. And the only reason to do that would be to try to cater to a very narrow special interest associate, you know, who who thinks they could benefit in the short term. On the other hand, I do think it's a totally fair critique and one that applies to the, the, the Recovery Act, as we were talking about, and re- applies to the Affordable Care Act, too, which is Dodd-Frank was a d- deeply imperfect piece of legislation that was born out of a legislative process that um, would have benefited from more collaboration uh, with Republicans, mm-hmm. uh, even if that meant more, um, uh, more give and take and more compromise on the front end. Uh, and ultimately would have benefited from the normal process of coming back at a piece of legislation after a year or two and being able to modify and fix things. And so there are, you know, there are technical and small components of Dodd-Frank that probably did go too far or haven't gotten implemented in the right way that if you had a functioning political system, you'd absolutely go back at. And the problem is that we ended up in this, you know, dichotomy of a debate between you know, kill Dodd-Frank, get rid of the Consumer uh, Protection Bureau altogether versus um, you know, Democrats feeling like they needed to hold the line and say, we're not going to let you, right. you know, nibble away at this. We're still in the same we're, – we're in the same predicament in that it's very hard to work collaboratively to fix the things that are uh, – that need fixing in all in, – in the Affordable Care Act, in – uh, Dodd Frank, uh, and there's this sort of zero sum game politics that is really, really distressing. You were the uh, I mentioned you were uh, deputy uh, budget director and um, acting budget director. Um, you've seen the budget that this administration, the preliminary, the skinny budget, it's called, that they've put forward uh, to start the discussion. It calls for $54 billion more in military spending and defense spending uh, and uh, and 
comparable cuts on, on domestic discretionary spending, which is a relatively small pool. Um, is that a plausible, plausible way forward? No. It's, uh, I guess that's called a leading question. <laughs> but. Well, look, the, the short answer is no, but it's not – but the, the, the reason why is important, which is, first of all, people keep referring to it as a skinny budget. There is a, there is a form of this as being much more fundamentally like a slacker budget because – Every other administration has come in and set to work to put forward a budget that actually demonstrates your priorities over a 10-year horizon. And that's how we budget in this country, for better or for worse. And so first things first, they put forward a very – it's very difficult to make budgetary choices if all you're showing is discretionary spending, which in and of itself is – you know, is – is – only a small share of the overall spending on mandatory programs like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. So you're just which like, the president says he doesn't want to who doesn't want does at least ostensibly uh, at least Medicare and Social Security. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, he he's intent on trying Medicaid. to undermine Medicaid, although that didn't go so well. So, but within just the discretionary budget, then the idea that you are going to have this trade off between you know, spending a lot more on defense and cutting domestic spending. It's, it's politically, it's not tenable because even the Republican Congress is not going to actually uh, take that up. But substantively, the problem with a lot of these things, a lot of the things that I think the administration is putting forward is the substantive rationale when you unpeel it has no substance to it. So the argument that they would say is we have to hold overall discretionary spending at a certain level and we want to spend more on defense. And therefore, it's simple mathematical calculation. You have to cut everything other than defense. But the whole reason for holding discretionary spending at that level goes back to a thing that some people may remember called the sequester. The sequester yeah. And the whole intellectual logic behind the sequester was that it was such a stupid and untenable level of spending that nobody would ever actually contemplate enacting it into law. So... Their argument distilled down is let's start, which they did, which they which they have which they have now taken on as an article of faith that somehow the sequester represents the right common sense common yeah. sense approach for the country. So you start with a backward, um, a sort of backward cons- budgetary constraint, and then you apply this rule of math against that backward constraint, and you end up with a budget that is not going to get enacted. And but. On the other hand, I also think, and having been at OMB and worked with the team there for a long time, it is not the case that you know budgets are dead on arrival and they don't have an impact. And just because that budget is not going to get enacted in the way that the administration put it forward doesn't mean that there's no impact. And we should point out that these are huge cuts in the State Department, uh, in the uh, National Institutes of Health. Uh, would zero out a whole bunch of the National uh, Humanities Council and all and the NEA, the National Endowment of the Arts, and so a whole range of programs would be eliminated under that. Yeah, and what I worry about is people getting a, cer- a certain amount of Stockholm syndrome of saying, "Well, the idea of cutting the State Department budget by 
you know, more than 30% or cutting the EPA and their enforcement capabilities um, by you know, thousands and thousands yeah. of, uh, of people is so bad that as and when the Congress comes back and cuts the State Department budget by only 15%, yeah. people... Maybe that's know, the art of the deal. Well, I think that, and I think that that's where budgets do matter, is mm-hmm. they set out negotiating parameters, they set out a bid and an ask, and that actually does become uh, the playing field on which you operate. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be back with Brian Deese. The issue that you became most identified with in the, in the final years of the Obama administration, and my hats, are off, my hats off to anybody who survives eight years in an administration because the work is so, uh, so draining and so exacting, so exhilarating but hard, was climate change and energy and the environment. And as we sit here today and have this conversation, there's apparently another conversation going on in the White House about uh, how to approach or whether to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord that you were deeply involved in uh, in, in developing, negotiating, and uh, uh, became a hallmark of the Obama years. Um, what what what's at stake in that discussion? I think that the the question about whether the Paris Agreement is going to go forward is actually not up for that much debate. Even in the way—what what, what has been striking is even in the wake of Trump's election, you've seen every major economy other than the United States, including the UK post-Brexit, the Chinese otherwise, reasserting their commitment to moving forward on the Paris Agreement. And at this point, you've seen virtually every major U.S. company, and small businesses too— but also, but that includes those in the fossil fuel industry, yeah. making the argument for various reasons, uh, and we could talk about their motives, but making the argument for why it's in the United States' interest to stay engaged on this issue going forward. So, Rex Tillerson was a proponent of that when he was an oil executive, presumably making the same arguments uh, now. And Exxon's advocacy for the Paris Agreement was a a factor when we were in Paris and we were negotiating uh, this agreement and their commitment to re-up that support after the agreement went into effect and after the Trump uh, election has been significant. And in fact, even just a week or two ago, you saw at least, um, uh, allegedly there was a letter that was sent by major U.S. coal companies, executives of coal companies making the argument that the being in the Paris Agreement created the opportunity, for example, to encourage greater research on carbon capture technologies and other opportunities for, uh, for coal. But even if, it, even if everybody else stays, the United States is a big contributor, the biggest contributor to, uh, to uh, greenhouse gases, to climate change. Uh, and if the United States uh, reverses course on a number of its initiatives and doesn't meet its uh, targets, that, that's impactful, is it not? Well, that's where I think that the impact is not that Paris is going to go away or it's going to shrivel and die. Ironically, I think the impact is what's, what is what is the impact going to be on our country and the United States if we decide to step away from the table at the same time that all these other countries and all these other industries are looking at that table as an opportunity to gain 
competitive advantage in this race toward cleaner energy technologies and jobs. And one of the things that always struck me, particularly working on this issue over the last year or so, is that it does have the feel of a race that both country governments and companies are projecting out and now thinking more so than they ever have before about the economic opportunities that are going to come from lower carbon trajectories. And that's true almost across the board. So what about the impact of not doing it? I not, mean, are they assessing also the cost of uh, globally of not meeting the the targets that the scientists suggest? Or I think that those costs are increasingly becoming clear too, and it's not just the um, it's not just the sort of inchoate cost of temperatures rising three or four decades out, it's increasingly people seeing costs today associated with whether it's increasing frequency of extreme weather events or it's uh, disease uh, uh, vectors that are affecting places in ways that they hadn't before. And the impact of migration that, you know, different parts of the world are looking out and saying, what's what's it going to mean if we have large, large areas of land that either Sea, sea level rise is going to affect whether they're livable or heat and drought are going to make Yeah, them presumably the well. Pentagon will make its voice heard in this debate as well. They've been major proponents of, 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 of climate action because of the geopolitical implications of climate change. And one of the things that the National Intelligence Council did last fall was they put out a declassified version of their threat assessment where what they basically do is they look at climate change from an objective threat perspective and project out five years and then 20 years out, what are the biggest, uh, what are the biggest concerns to American security associated with this? And they, they keyed in on this question of disease, of migration, and conflict and- associated uh, with that, uh, and the instability that that raises. And I think that you see that that work is going to continue within uh, our Defense Department. So don't get me wrong. I think the impact of the, the United States pulling back um, and leaving that uh, table, if that's what uh, the administration decides to do, is um, is embarrassing, and it sets us apart from the rest of the world uh, as not recognizing the opportunity associated with it. But I think the biggest effects, particularly in the short term, will be putting the United States uh, at risk and at a disadvantage because those conversations are going to go on, those investments are going to continue, and countries are going to... Understandably, you're talking about as an economic matter. As an economic matter, that you know the the question of are we going to be represented at the table when China is trying to cut deals with other countries around you know the development of clean energy technologies or the development of nuclear technology, which has big security uh, um, stakes uh, in it as well. And so, you know, I think the argument as to why we as the United States would not want to be at that table. I get it if the argument is, well, by dint of us leaving, we could fold the table up and the picnic would be over. That would be, I think, a a backward way of looking at it, but I could at least understand the argument. But that table's going to continue, and the food is all laid out, and everybody is ready uh, to to eat. And so just walking away, uh, I think, is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it, it, principally will put the United States as an econ- at an economic disadvantage. Scott Pruitt, the new EPA director, uh, is a, a climate doubter, <laughs> I, I guess is fair to say. But clearly, um, you know, he represented uh, the oil and gas interests and um, very hostile to 
the EPA uh, and many of its uh, many of its rules, and um, was skept- openly skeptical about climate change. What impact is he having, uh, and what impact will it have moving forward to have him in that role? Well, I think what a lot of people forget is that the Environmental Protection Agency, it's the principal footprint and the principal job that EPA officials uh, do across the country is engagement at the community level on enforcement of uh, pollution laws around local Mm -hmm. air pollution and water pollution. And that those are activities that EPA civil servants have been undertaking for decades and that communities rely on. And look, the EPA doesn't uh, always get it right. And, you know, what happened in Flint is an example where you had a breakdown uh, on multiple levels. And a lot of people ended up putting in a being put in a situation that absolutely never should have happened. But the idea that the answer to that is rather than to bolster the EPA's capacity to effectively monitor and enforce the laws that protect the air and water that our kids drink and breathe is to decimate that agency's uh, capacity across the country so that you greatly increase the likelihood of flints happening across the country, I think is just extraordinarily damaging. That is before you get to the impact on the agency's ability to effectively address climate change. But that, I think, is the most immediate impact that you're going to see, and that's the impact of a, a budget that would take the EPA's capacity to do its job and throw it out the window. And it's, I think it's also it's reflective of leadership that doesn't seem to fundamentally believe in the mission uh, of the EPA, that the, the, this, this idea that we are all better served by having It is agency. kind of Orwellian to appoint someone to head the EPA who fundamentally has, has, has set himself up as an opponent of the EPA. Um, yeah, and I think that it's 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 also a, a you know it's 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 Orwellian from a kind of a ideo- ideological standpoint, and it's just unbelievably disempowering from a practical standpoint. That yes, government often gets gets things wrong, and, but this is a this is a playbook that we've seen in the past, which is the best way to further undermine the American people's faith in government institutions is to undercut their funding and undercut their ability to deliver, which just makes people more cynical and more frustrated. And so what I worry is that there actually is a method uh, to this, which is if what you want to do is you want to undercut the EPA's ability to protect clean air and clean water, then going at their core enforcement capacity is a way to just so further doubt that the federal government can actually yeah. engage. Yeah, and that may be good for the long-term project, but if you're Donald Trump, this is now on your account. And if there are other flints uh, in the midst of these cuts, those are going to be held uh, uh, to your account. So uh, I think that the politics of it aren't as good for him as those whose long-term project is dissolution of faith in government. Let me just ask you one other thing about this, and I want to ask you a couple of things about yourself on the way out here. You, part of the uh, OMB's job uh, is was the evaluation, OIRA, the evaluation of regulations. This administration has said we're going to 
uh, vastly uh, uh, slim down the number of regulations. Every for every new regulation, we have to eliminate uh, two. Uh, you have had enough exposure to it. Do you, do you believe there are regulations that? And I know some of them were. You know, our friend uh, Cass Sunstein was in charge of this process. Some were done away with. But is it not right to say, hey, maybe we do overregulate in places? Maybe we do have to get smarter about how to regulate. Yeah, there's no question that there are opportunities for us to think more coherently about the way in which we regulate and to look back and ask questions about is the way we did something five or 10 or 15 years ago um, really still the right way to do things. And one of the things that I was most excited about when we were in government was thinking about how to actually embed within regulations that we were doing um, ways of in the future checking whether the regulatory approach still made sense so that you were actually embedding that into the regulatory process. But the, the problem is that that is, by definition, has to be a, uh, a nuanced approach where what you're actually trying to do is identify ways to make people's lives better and easier, make it easier for businesses to operate, as opposed to your goal is to simply reduce the number of regulations which is a meaningless uh, a meaningless goal because there are a lot of there are you know there are a lot of regulations that you can you can have 15 regulations but all of them work together in a really straightforward way and they make a lot of sense and actually the businesses that rely on those long-term signals actually benefit from having those 15 regulations working together and there can be one regulation that wasn't done in exactly the right way and causes a whole bunch of problems and so this is you know this is the kind of thing where you need to have uh people and you need to have a approach within government that says, let's focus on what we care about in terms of the outcomes, which is, you know, make it easier for businesses to hire workers, uh, so long as it's consistent with safety and, you know, um, and health and well-being. If, okay, if that's your outcome, let's not start from the premise that well, that, that should, last phrase, so long as it's consistent with health and well-being and so on, is maybe may not be the policy. <laughs> well, and, that, and and look, and that's what you that's what you worry about when you see things like two regulations out for every one regulation in. What's the what's the what's the driving character of that? Because if your goal is to try to you know improve the business environment or improve the environment for consumers, there's no evidence to suggest that one in two out you know is right. going to get you there. Right. You you spent eight years, as I mentioned, in in the middle of everything, and the last. Uh, several sitting beside the president on many of these major issues. How are you adjusting to, uh, to being, uh, living the bucolic life in Portland, Maine? Well, I, I, I do, I, I will say that the thing that is the hardest for me now is not feeling too guilty about um, how nice it is to be able to take a deep breath and, relax a bit and to spend time where I'm focused on my kids and uh, my family and not feeling that constant sense that, you, you know, your time isn't your own. And it's an extraordinarily unspeakable privilege to get to work in the jobs that I worked in, 
But the single hardest thing about it is it's not even the hours. It's the lack of control mm-hmm. in being able to ever carve out time because you know this well, that even if, even if you can find time, you always know in the back of your head that you might lose that time and you're not able to, you know, you're and not. You end up disappointing people you love and, and care about and who come to begin to expect to be disappointed, which is tough. So no withdrawal though. You know, I've actually been, uh, I've been a little bit surprised myself, uh, at, um, the, how nice it has felt uh, so far. You know, I will say part of this is I have a, you know, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. So I w- went from an environment where I wasn't sleeping a lot, uh, you know, and was m- moving around a lot because of the job. And now I'm not sleeping anymore, but it's because I'm, you know, mm-hmm. more uh, engaged uh, there. But, you know, there are, there, there are, t- there's a, there are moments where, uh, my wife and I look at each other and say, oh, you know, what, what comes next? What are we doing here? And, you know, I'd say those, if you asked her, she'd probably give you a clearer sense of how often those moments of anxiety <laughs> come <laughs> than uh-huh. me. Uh, but I'm trying to find, uh, I'm trying to push through them so that I give myself and we have the time to really just come down and reflect on that whole period. I mean, what we were talking about, you know, the summer of 2007 is when I jumped on the Hillary Clinton campaign and I've been sort of sprinting ever since then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, um, I, I, I don't, I, I did not know a more honorable, uh, thoughtful, brilliant person in government than you. And when people say, that they don't trust government, I should send them to you uh, because if they spend a little time with you, and hopefully they have just now, uh, they'll understand um, uh, that there are really good people trying to do important things to make this a better country, and you're right at the top of the list. So, Brian Deese, thank you uh, for your service, and thanks for being here at the Institute of Politics and for spending time with me. Thank you. That means an extraordinary amount of Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.